Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Dr. Caitlin Henderson of Oxfam America, who discusses her group's recent Best and Worst States to Work report and recommendations for federal and state policy reforms to improve the lives of America's working families. Wanda Bertram of the Prison Policy Initiative, who talks about her group's new report that finds climate change-driven higher temperatures in prisons leads to increased deaths. And Cindy Fokers, radiation and health hazard specialist with the group Beyond Nuclear, who assesses the health hazards linked with Japan's decision to release 350 million gallons of radioactive wastewater into the Pacific Ocean. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. In the northeast edge of Canada, in the Nanutsavat Autonomous Inuit region in Newfoundland and Labrador, the indigenous people are working with the Canadian government to co-develop the world's first Inuit protected area. The goal is to design a marine conservation plan to counter the destructive impact of climate change and to preserve the Inuit's traditional way of life. The conservation zone would span nearly 6,000 square miles of the Labrador Sea bordering the Torngat Mountains National Park. The region is roughly the same size as Ireland, but with only 3,000 Inuit residents. The area is home to important populations of fish, such as salmon and arctic char, and the habitat of arctic marine mammals, including polar bears, beluga whales, and seals. According to the Guardian newspaper, the Nanutsavat region has lost 40 days of snow annually since the 1950s. Snow and ice in the region are disappearing more rapidly than any other place in the Arctic. Significant natural gas deposits have been found offshore along the Labrador Shelf, but this fossil fuel has remained largely unexplored because of the ice. As the climate warms, the region is becoming more accessible to drilling and wells, but the Inuit-protected area would prevent such resource extraction. Republican dirty trickster James O'Keefe, known for employing hidden video cameras and manipulative editing to entrap and embarrass liberal activists, including ACORN, labor union members, and Democratic politicians, is now under criminal investigation by the Westchester County, New York District Attorney. The investigation comes after O'Keefe was fired by Project Veritas, the right-wing propaganda group he founded over a decade ago. In May, the project's board sued O'Keefe for breach of contract and alleged financial improprieties as the group's chairman and CEO. Back in February, O'Keefe was accused of spending an excessive amount of donor funds in the last three years on personal luxuries, including $150,000 on high-end limo services, $60,000 for dance events, and a video production of a pop music celebration of his life. 
During the Trump years, O'Keefe lined up big donors for his right-wing outfit and raised $22 million in the last year of the Trump presidency. At the same time, he boosted his own salary from $56,000 to $430,000 a year and lived in high-priced hotel suites. According to The Nation magazine, Project Veritas is now in a deep financial crisis and laying off staff. As this summer's record-breaking heat made it dangerously uncomfortable for many Americans, especially the poor and homeless, two million farm workers carried an extra burden. They must wear heavy clothing to protect themselves from pesticides applied to commercial crops. While personal protective equipment such as flannel shirts, overalls, and gloves are often worn to protect against dangerous chemicals, the extra clothing raises the heat stress of low-paid field workers. Pesticides are actively applied to 250 million acres of farmland across the U.S. While the Environmental Protection Agency is tasked with educating farm workers on the dangers of agrochemicals and promoting best practices, only one-third of these workers receive annual mandatory pesticide safety training. As a result, in some places, many farm workers out in the fields suffer from heat-related illnesses every year. As In These Times reports, farm workers often skip water and cool-down breaks, risking their own health in the prevailing wage system, where workers receive piece-rate wages, being paid by the bushel or bucket of crops they harvest, instead of an hourly wage. While climate change and extreme heat have revealed a fundamental flaw in our food system, there is little urgency to address the protection of farm workers in the Farm Bill now pending before Congress. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. As Labor Day was celebrated across the U.S. in 2023, union activism was running at a fever pitch in what many are calling hot strike summer. Hundreds of thousands of workers, from UPS drivers to Hollywood writers and actors to hotel and healthcare workers, have threatened to go out on strike or have walked the picket lines. Over 230 strikes have been recorded so far this year, involving more than 320,000 workers a dramatic increase from previous years. Record levels of income and wealth inequality in the U.S., as well as workplace disruption during the COVID pandemic, have emboldened workers fighting for a livable wage, improved benefits, and better working conditions. The federal minimum wage remains at $7.25 an hour, unchanged since 2009, the longest period ever without an increase. While the federal government has failed to act to implement policies to address the daily struggles of working families, some state governments have taken action to fill the gap. Oxfam America recently published their annual Best and Worst States to Work report, which identifies U.S. states that have the most robust laws to mandate adequate wages, safe working conditions, and rights to organize unions. Your reporter spoke with Dr. Caitlin Henderson, Senior Research Advisor 
with Oxfam America's U.S. Domestic Policy Program, who summarizes the highlights in the report and Oxfam's recommendations for policy reforms. So this index looks at 26 different policies across three big themes. The themes are wages, worker protections, and rights to organize. So we are looking at everything from the minimum wage and the tipped wage to issues of paid leave, flexible scheduling, domestic worker protections, protections for farm workers, to questions around organizing. Is this a pro-union state? Are public and private worker, private sector workers allowed to organize and bargain collectively? So trying to think of a very holistic approach to what it is for states to have policies that are in support of workers and working families. Dr. Henderson, who are the winners and losers, in your view, uh, among the states, the 50 states that you looked at? Well, a couple things to note. Number one, this is an index looking at all 50 states plus D.C. and Puerto Rico. So the ranking system is out of 52. Um, Another thing to note is we like to think of this index as a very encouraging race to the top. So there's not losers so much as states that have an opportunity to do more. Yes. (laughs) We really want to encourage people to do more. But to the, to the question you're asking, the states at the top of our index this year, these are states that are very consistently in the top five. Number one, we have California. They have so many great policies in support of workers that I'm happy to dive into. Uh, number two is Oregon. And number three this year is the District of Columbia. On the flip side of the index, those that lower down the rankings, and last this year, as the last few years, is North Carolina. They come in dead last, followed by Mississippi and Georgia. And we tend to see that states that are coastal, West Coast, East Coast, sort of New England, tend to perform better, and states in the U.S. South tend to very consistently show up at the bottom of our rankings. But as we conclude, please summarize Oxfam's list of recommended policy reforms at both the state and federal level that would improve the well-being of working families. Absolutely. So we'll, we'll go across all three of the themes, unsurprisingly, even at the state level and also at the federal level, we are calling for a raise in the minimum wage and an end of the sub-minimum tipped wage, which traps way too many people and overwhelmingly women in squiggle poverty. So we need to raise the wage. We especially need to do so at the federal level. Um, But there is no state that has a minimum wage that allows a family of four to afford their basic cost of living. So that's a big one. One of the biggest expenses of people today, and especially families, is childcare. So we're also calling for investment in childcare from the federal government, but also at the state level. And we see some great examples of how that can be done from states like New Mexico that wrote childcare funding into their constitution only recently. We certainly, going into the worker protection category, Paid leave is hugely important. It is about the well-being of people, the well-being of their communities. So we asked the federal government to pass a paid leave law. There are several in front of Congress today, including the Family Act, and also for states that have not already done so to also pass paid leave. Minnesota only this year passed a paid family leave policy that allows workers to take up to 20 weeks of paid leave, which is incredible and such a model for other states and the federal government. And then, of course, 
we really need to protect the right to organize and to form a union and to collectively bargain. And at the federal level, that looks like passing the PRO Act or the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, which this year has been renamed in honor of a former worker organizer, Richard Trumka. We see movement happening at the state level. I really want to give a special shout out to the state of Michigan that overturned their right to work law this year. And it was the first time state had overturned that law in over 50 years. So we are seeing really exciting progress. There is much to be optimistic about. And while we need to celebrate the wins, we still need to hold policymakers at the federal and the state level accountable and ask for more because working families deserve more. That was Dr. Caitlin Henderson, Senior Research Advisor with Oxfam America's U.S. Domestic Policy Program. Find a link to Oxfam's Best and Worst States to Work in America report by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. July this year was the hottest month ever recorded as temperatures spiked around the world, including in the U.S. The extreme heat seems to have finally melted away the lack of awareness or concern by many in our nation toward the suffering of incarcerated people. It's often not just prisoners, but correction officers and other prison staff who live and work in insufferable and sometimes even deadly conditions. Previous studies have exposed these conditions, but a new report from the Prison Policy Initiative titled Heat, Floods, Pest, Disease, and Death what climate change means for people in prison, illuminates how serious the problem is. Between the lines, Melinda Tuhus spoke with Wanda Bertram, communication strategist with the Prison Policy Initiative. Here she discusses surprising regional data on the impact of extreme heat on prisoners, as well as other conditions exacerbated by climate change, such as flooding and insect infestation. There was some new research that found that there is a very strong correlation between higher temperatures in prisons and a higher number of deaths, particularly for every 10 degree increase that a prisons across the country experience as kind of away from the mean uh, temperature in the summer, depending on where you are, when temperatures increase by 10 degrees or more, there is a jump in the percentage of deaths attributable to heat by about five percentage points. And then furthermore, um, researchers were able to determine that when an extreme heat day hits prisons, um, there is an associated 3.5% increase in all deaths across the board. So we really do see for the first time what I think many people know intuitively to be true, which is that heat kills, right? People in prisons, you know, beyond just being in these environments that can be stifling and suffocating and where it's difficult, for instance, to get access to cold water, extra showers, things that can help you, you know, air conditioning, those populations are also disproportionately suffering from uh, health conditions that make them vulnerable to the heat, right? Like diabetes, asthma, uh, hypertension. Uh, Many of them are taking uh, psychiatric drugs that make them vulnerable to the heat. That's playing out in ways that are really deadly. You know, you asked for any particularly striking examples of how the heat is, is hurting people behind bars. I guess one that I would just want to point out at the outset is that this research that we recapped in our report looked at how exposure to extreme heat impacts mortality rates in states across the country. And it looked at how this differs in regions across the country. 
And I was surprised because I assumed, and I think many people would assume that states in the South are going to fare the worst, right? That the most, you know, states in the South are so hot already that when temperatures jump even higher, people, you know, experience this large increase in deaths. But it's actually states in the Northeast that are experiencing the greatest jump. What they found was that after a two-day heat wave, prisons in the Northeast experienced on average a 21% increase in deaths. And that's huge compared to the South, which experienced about a 1.3% increase in deaths. The West experienced an 8.6% increase. You know, we know that there have been a lot of discussions of, of how extreme heat is impacting people in prisons in Texas, for instance, or Louisiana. There was recently an ex exposition of young people who are being held in these stifling conditions at Angola State Prison. Those are the ones that get all the media attention, but the new data shows that we can't let Northeastern states off the hook because people in Northeastern states are suffering even more uh, when it comes to mortality rates. Is it because people in the South are already used to high heat? It tracks with research that shows that uh, or suggests that heat acclimated populations fare a little bit better in a hotter world. So basically, yes. I think some prisons in the South are, are air conditioned and some aren't. Is that right? We did a study, a survey of um, state prisons in the South a couple of years ago. And what we found was that there was only one state that we could find that appeared to have anywhere near universal air conditioning, and that was Arkansas. Every other state had very clear documented gaps in the air conditioning in its prisons. Um, and recently, in particular, I've been hearing that Georgia prisons are quite without air conditioning right now. You know, people are roasting alive inside there, right? And nobody should have to experience those conditions. It's cruel and unusual. It's actually been ruled as cruel and unusual by multiple state Supreme Courts and even federal courts, but states have not really done anything about it. In fact, they've been, they've been fighting tooth and nail against uh, lawsuits that would require them to install more air conditioning. You know, you were talking about other climate impacts or maybe other impacts that go along with heat or maybe are separate from heat uh, related to climate change that people experience in prison. You know, one of the one of the examples that we cite in our report where we talk about the different ways that climate change is impacting people is a prison in Utah. It was just built, actually, close to the flats of Salt Lake, where mosquito populations have begun to thrive. Even though there was a lot of concern about building a prison in this location, they continued to build it. And now it's gotten so bad uh, that prison officials just don't know what to do. And their current stopgap solution is to make bug spray available at the commissary. Now, of course, you can imagine what a prison is like when people are spraying bug spray everywhere. It's, you know, there's not a lot of ventilation. It's not, that's not a healthy solution either. Floods are a big issue for prisons, which are generally not prepared for things like hurricanes. There needs to be a lot more public pressure to get uh, help for people who are in these institutions. That was Wanda Bertram, communication strategist with the Prison Policy Initiative. Find a link to the group's recent report on the climate change-driven impact of extreme heat on U.S. prisons by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. It's been 12 years since an earthquake-triggered tsunami destroyed Japan's Fukushima nuclear power complex, 
resulting in the meltdown of three of the plant's six reactors. Three reactor core explosions released the highest amount of radiation into the environment since the 1986 Chernobyl nuclear disaster in Ukraine. More than 160,000 people were forced to evacuate the region around the plant, and there remains a 310-square-mile exclusion zone around the complex, where radiation levels are still too high for humans to return safely. Since the March 2011 disaster, radioactive cooling water has been collected at the site and stored in 1,000 steel tanks. As of August 24th, the Japanese government authorized the plant operator TEPCO to slowly release 350 million gallons of this contaminated water into the Pacific Ocean over the next 30 years. While the U.S. and International Atomic Energy Agency say the release of Fukushima water conforms with safety standards, China fiercely opposes the move and has banned seafood products imported from Japan. Local Japanese fishermen and many citizens from across the coastal region, including South Korea, Taiwan, and the Philippines, are fearful of the health effects, with many abstaining from eating seafood. Your reporter spoke with Cindy Fokers, radiation and health hazard specialist with the group Beyond Nuclear, who assesses the health hazards linked to Japan's decision to release Fukushima's contaminated water into the Pacific. So this was the water that was used to cool the melting core material, which is highly, highly radioactive. Um, And so the water became highly contaminated, and they needed to use this water so that the cores wouldn't melt any further and so that they could get the accident, the catastrophe, and the melting cores under control. So that's where this water came from, just in brief. They're going to take a number of decades to release it into the Pacific Ocean. But the problem is, is that as far as we can tell, there's only about 40 percent of these thousand or so containers that contain this water that have actually been analyzed for radioactivity. And not all of the isotopes were searched for in these analyses What they tried to do is they tried to take the contaminated water and filter some of these radioisotopes out. And they do manage to a certain point to filter some of them out. But even the ones that they managed to filter out partially are not completely gone. So you still have uh, radiocobalt, radiostrontiums and radiocesiums, and plutonium, among others. But then you also have tritium, which is radioactive hydrogen, which you cannot filter out at all. And all of these bioconcentrate in the aquatic environment that they're dumping it into. So in this case, dilution really won't work. They are releasing this material into the environment, and it doesn't really matter how over what time they release it. It could be decades. It will still recollect and reassemble itself or bioconcentrate again in the aquatic life that's around there. So any seafood or ocean life that's around there or shore life is at risk because of this dumping and this bioconcentration. And radionuclides in general, and tritium in particular, have been associated with DNA damage and all types of cancer and non-cancer diseases, certainly for the case of tritium when taken into the body. You know, you have the sea life that you'd want to eat uh, or consume, you know, and radionuclides will collect inside and they'll collect it greater than they were in the concentration of the water where the life was living. 
And that's how you get a rockfish that is contaminated 180 times what the limit is in Japan for ingestion of radiocesium. This is going to be a continual issue with them and the countries around them. China had banned some seafood imports from Japan. But the problem is, you know, places like the European Union and the United States have to some degree lifted their bans and the monitoring that was the strict monitoring that had been required. But the problem with that is in the United States, for instance, for cesium contamination, our limit for cesium contamination in food that we would ingest is 12 times the limit in Japan. So I have to ask the question, what happens if they catch a fish that they couldn't sell in Japan? Could they just figure out that it's contaminated more than they could sell there, but they could just ship it over to the United States? And it wouldn't violate our limits on, in this case, radioactive cesium, but strontium here is also higher, radiostrontium. The United States and the United Nations, as I understand it, accepted the Japanese plan to, to dump this radioactive water into the Pacific Ocean over a number of years. There have been protests by China, South Korea, and citizens from all the neighboring countries, including citizens of Japan, that are very unhappy with the state of affairs with the dumping of radioactive water into the Pacific. What, in your view, is the short-term and long-term effect on human health and marine life? I think in general, anytime you have man-made radiological contamination, no matter what isotope, anytime you have that contamination in your foodstuffs, even at low levels, over time, it is very unhealthy for our DNA. It can damage us genetically in ways that seem at first to be subtle, but after generations, you can start to see impacts from such DNA damage. It would be like almost a a slow boil, and it might take a few generations, and then you start to wonder, well, why are people getting sick with this kind of strange cancer? Or why is this occurring? Is this disease all of a sudden popping up in children when it was only an adult disease? Or strange things like that. You start to see a genomic degradation. This goes for humans, and it also goes for animals. The problem is, is that by the time you start to see these things, it's hard to trace it back to the radiological exposure that happened through foodstuffs to begin with. And so that's why, you know, we're cautioning for generations in the future, but also for today, you can have very subtle health impacts and you may not be able to attribute it to radiation exposure. And that's what the studies seem to be indicating for these lower levels of exposure, particularly for inhalation, for taking it inside your system. And so once you start to release these biological disruptors in the form of radionuclides, you're only adding to the burden of what was a naturally occurring sort of level of cancer, a naturally occurring level of disease. And so you're slowly sort of degrading the genome and and sickening people over decades, over generations. That's my main concern. That was Cindy Fokers, radiation and health hazard specialist with the group Beyond Nuclear. Find more perspectives on Japan's release of contaminated water from the Fukushima nuclear plant into the Pacific Ocean by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been 
listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on KKFI in Kansas City, Missouri, KBCS in Bellevue, Washington, Radio Helsinki in Graz, Austria, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.